Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you in worship, and special welcome. If you're visiting with us, I'd love to meet you after the service, if you can stick around for a few moments. Uh, We've been going through an extended study of the Gospel of Luke, and we've come now to the, the last session, the last sermon on the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be starting next week with uh, Luke's second book, uh, with Acts, at least through the first seven chapters. So hope you'll be here for that. Uh, This is our Gospel reading. This is Luke 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still not did believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish And he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? We all have locked doors that we don't want to let you through. And they look differently in each of our lives. Some of us have a locked door to believe at all, that you can't possibly be who you claim to be. Some of us have locked doors over our bank account, our relationships, our job, many things that we don't want you to walk through because we know that if you do, everything must change. Father, I pray that we as a church would have open doors, and certainly there are places that we have locked to you some that we don't even know about. And I pray that you would throw open those doors, that the gospel would change everything, and that you would send us, that we would not just simply be people content to receive your word and your teaching and your gospel, but that we would be restless to give it away. Lord, I pray that this would be more and more true in this church, more and more true in our lives, and begin now as we look at this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Heard a story this week of a man who, upon turning 60, decided, well, it's time to get an extensive health review. And after two visits with a new doctor and extensive lab tests, the doctor came back and said, well, you're doing fairly well for a guy of your age. 
So this kind of troubled the guy. He was perplexed. Well, what, is, what does this mean? Fairly well for a guy my age, is that good or bad? And so he wanted to make it more concrete. And he said, well, doctor, I'm 60. Do you think that I'll live to be 80? So the doctor asked him a battery of questions. And he says, well, do you participate in high-risk activities and sports? Do you drive fast cars? Do you skydive? Do you mountain climb? No, 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 I don't do th- dangerous things like that. Well, do you spend a lot of time in the sun? You know, maybe playing golf, sailing, sitting on the beach. No, 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 no. I've heard skin cancer is very deadly, so I stay out of the sun. Well, do you eat steaks, barbecued ribs? Do you eat pork belly? No, I don't do that because red meat is very bad for you. Do you smoke tobacco or drink much beer or wine? Oh, no, I don't do that. The doctor said, then why do you care? Why do you give a rip whether you live 20 more years? Everyone here is living for something, some vision of the good life, some purpose, some story, some mission, even if it's just to stick around as long as possible. Here, after we've gone through 24 chapters of Luke, all that he has taught us and told us, he's now commissioning us to embody, to live out. Jesus comes into this room of disciples, and he is giving them a commission. He is sending them. You see what I have done. Now I want you to do something in light of that. And he says that there are three three things that sums up Jesus' mission. It was to suffer, to rise, and to proclaim. And in some way, if you're his disciple, you will embody these three things. So first of all, to suffer. Jesus came to suffer. The context, if you remember the last few weeks, is these fantastic discoveries have been made about the resurrection, that the women went to the tomb and saw that the stone was rolled away and there's no body, and they come back to the 11 male disciples just overjoyed and also confused and perplexed. They don't know what's happened, and they're dismissed. The guys say, these women are hysterical. They, don't, they have something wrong with them. They're denying reality. And then two followers, as Steve taught us about last week, two followers are walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus himself walks up and begins talking with them. And they run and tell the eleven. But they're still scared. They're still frightened. They're huddled in this room with doors locked. And they're discussing these things. Can this be true? What is going on? We didn't expect this. And then Jesus walks in. And it's sort of like that film TV trope where someone is talking about another person and they happen to come around the corner right as they're concluding and they come to within earshot and you can see the person talking to this crowd or the individuals in their face is like, you know, be quiet. And it's like he's standing right behind me, isn't he? He's standing right, he's walked in on this conversation about him, and it's like they've seen a ghost. It frightens them. They don't know what to do with this. And what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. Peace, rest, shalom, salvation, the way things are supposed to be. That's what Jesus is bringing into this room the way things are supposed to be. And that's why, as Steve indicated last week, Luke connects in the passage that we read last week what Jesus is doing in opening eyes to the open eyes of Adam and Eve in the garden. 
that when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were open. They were open to death. They were open to suffering. They were open to seeing a world of suffering. Here, when the Jesus opens their mind, when he opens their eyes, they are open to see new life. They're open to see the way things were designed to be. They're open to see salvation. And it's sheer grace that Jesus comes in, the risen Christ comes in into this room, not with condemnation. These were the people that had left him, had abandoned him, had denied him. And he comes not with condemnation, not with threats, not with coercion, but he comes with outstretched arms and words of peace, salvation, shalom on his lips. Why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? You should recognize me. I'm not a ghost. I am your friend. I am your rabbi, your teacher. This is what I told you while I was still with you, Jesus says. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, it's understandable. If you look back at the Old Testament, even after reading the gospel accounts, it's hard to find exact proof texts that show everything that's going to happen. It may not have been obvious because even the disciples missed it. And Steve shared last week how easy it is for intelligent, knowledgeable people, educated people, to miss the point. One of my favorite scenes in Dr. Strangelove is the, as the Russian ambassador is talking to the war cabinet, the war room, and he talks about horrifically, he's explaining his country's newly finished doomsday machine and how its imminent activation would mean the end of the whole world. And General Buck Turgeson whispers over to a friend, boy, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines. You see, he's missing the point. It's going to destroy the whole world. Who cares who has it? He's missing the point. The point of the Old Testament, the point of what Jesus is saying here is not that such and such verse has now been fulfilled. It's that the entire storyline of the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Everything that the Old Testament points to has now been realized. And what the disciples needed was not just to go and look at proof texts, but to see a whole new way to have a new interpreted, interpretive grid. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer. And he showed them his hands and his feet. That's the new interpretive grid. That the Messiah, the King, that God will come and suffer on behalf of rebellious humanity. That he will rise again. That's the interpretive grid that explains the Old Testament. That's how the Old Testament prophets are fulfilled. It's not what they were expecting, and probably more importantly, it's not what they wanted. But the good news of the gospel is that this really is the nature of God himself, that he is a God of love, a God who loves in freedom, a God who is for humanity, a God who will do anything to draw his rebellious creatures back into relationship with him. And Jesus bears witness to this character of God, to the expansive love of God, because he leaves his heavenly home, takes up flesh, comes and suffers. That that expresses the very nature of God. That he comes not to overpower the forces of evil, but by taking their full weight upon him. By being willing to suffer for you and for me. 
His death thrust upon his followers the realization that they are, if they are to take up his name and become his followers, then they too must suffer. They too must be willing to take the weight of evil on themselves. They too must be willing to care for other people's burdens. They too must give their lives for others in humility rather than seeking acclaim. A life which seeks out others' gain rather than their own. A life which carries the burdens of those right next to you, be they spiritual, physical, emotional. When we talk about missions in the church, it makes generally Christians feel guilty because they feel like they're not doing enough or they don't know what to do. And it makes non-Christians edgy and nervous because they start feeling like a target or a project. But really, as we're talking about this, what we're talking about is just simply seeing the burdens around you and then stepping into those burdens and carrying them as best you can. Jesus says he comes first to suffer. And if you belong to him, if you've received his salvation, then that is your calling as well, is to suffer for the world around you, to give your life on behalf of the burdens and the people next to you. And then secondly, he says to rise, not just to suffer, but to rise. And this is another thing that he has pointed out that he's fulfilled in the Old Testament. Why are you troubled? Look at my hands and feet. And he took it and ate it in their presence. How did they miss this? On one hand, they should have known. They should have seen how beautifully Jesus' death and resurrection tied up all of the prophecies and all of the loose ends of the Old Testament. They should have seen it coming. But Jesus' death, on the other hand, and his resurrection radically reinterpreted the scriptures that they thought that they knew. Whenever Katie and I are watching a movie or TV show, I probably have shared this with you before, but she always knows the end of the movie before I do. She always is able to figure out who the villain is and how they're going to achieve their evil plot. And it's so frustrating because she'll press pause or at least look over to me and say, so do you want me to tell you what's going to (laughs) happen? No, I don't want to know. But after the secret is revealed. You begin to think back over some of the details that you've been, that you've come to know, some of the details of the story, and they're reinterpreted. They take on new meaning, but at the same time, you say, how did I miss that? How did I not see that coming? And that's kind of the situation that the disciples find themselves in. It's on one hand, how did I miss that? I lived with him for at least two years, walking and learning from him. And yet, on the other hand, Yeah, this is very different. It's not what I expected and not what I wanted. It's not purely physical and political. Jesus doesn't come and set up an immediate physical kingdom, an earthly political kingdom, as they probably expected. Nor is it purely spiritual. Nor is it just, I'm going to bring salvation so you can leave this dirty, sinful world and come with me to heaven. But instead, Jesus is raised. It's a spiritual miracle. He walks through walls. In some way, his physical body has changed, that he is now a picture of redeemed humanity, a picture of future humanity. There's a spiritual miracle, and he comes offering salvation from sins, offering reconciliation to God. But he's raised bodily. He occupies physical space. He eats with them to prove that he is not a ghost. He's not just 
a spirit, but he is a person. He is a new human. And what we see here is an encapsulation, a picture of the Christian hope. It's not to escape this world and go to heaven. It's that heaven has come down in the form of Jesus. That heaven has come down and taken up space, physical space, a body that's able to eat, a body that's able to suffer. The heavenly, the spiritual, is joined with the physical and with the earthly. And therefore, very practically, there's nothing outside the scope of God's redemption. There's nothing outside the scope of what God is interested in, in the world and in your life. And therefore, as one Christian thinker has said, there are no little people and there's, there are no little places. The most important place on earth now is where God has you. Where God has you now is the most important place on earth. When we pray each and every week, give us today our daily bread, doesn't that mean then that making bread is a holy calling? Doesn't that mean that plowing a field is invested with divinity and purpose and beauty and significance? Maybe you think, well, I just wait tables. Maybe you think, well, I just do other people's taxes. Maybe you think, I just stay at home with my children. But what God thinks you do is beautiful and lovely, and it's filled with his presence, and it's worthwhile, and it's important. When we talk about mission, when we talk about the purpose of the church, your purpose as an individual Christian, we have to remember that it's not aimed only or solely at the spiritual realm, but it's aimed at body and labor and commerce and relationships and gardens and play spaces and diapers and eating and drinking. All of these things are infused now with purpose and meaning because heaven has come down to a physical place. It's not about escape. It's not about going to a better place, as you may have heard it said in the media or in Christian testimony. It's bringing heaven into your midst by the power of the Spirit. Everything, then, is of of cosmic importance. Jesus says he comes to suffer, he comes to, to rise again, and then he comes to proclaim. And he hands off this task to his disciples, beginning in Jerusalem. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And we'll see how these disciples next week and in the weeks after shifted from this huddled, confused, scared group of people to change the whole Mediterranean basin, to go and be witnesses that they saw what Luke has been telling them about. And they took it very personally, and they went and did these things, preaching repentance, first of all. Repentance is the realignment of life towards God's purposes. It's realigning yourself with what you were made to be. It is asking God to come into your life and to make you more fully human, to better represent the person that he's made you to be. Realignment of life towards God's purposes. It is repenting of a life spent, devoted to yourself, 
and to say, now I want to join you in what you're doing. I want to have my life centered upon you, the work of Jesus and his future work in the world. That's repentance. Also forgiveness. Forgiveness in Luke is, is release. It's being released from spiritual and social bondage. It's being set free that you're no longer a prisoner because what Jesus has done on your behalf, now you are no longer enslaved to your own sin. You can stand before God and truly believe for the first time that he accepts you, that he loves you, that your sins have been taken away from you and put as far as the east is from the west, that you can have confidence in that, that that's what they begin to preach is repentance and forgiveness And it was from Jerusalem. Go from where you are now. Jerusalem was the spiritual center that pilgrims came from all around to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But now it's not the place that people are brought to, but the place from which people go. They leave Jerusalem and take the good news of the gospel, take the message of repentance and forgiveness to all the world. And it's a movement that emulates God himself and how God works because God himself goes. He makes himself known intentionally through the person of Jesus. He enters into vulnerable relationships with his creatures. He even bows to the weakness and limitations of human language, and that's why the Bible at times can seem kind of strange and squirrely. It's because God, in all of his unfathomable wisdom and beauty, is being communicated through the finite language of one culture In one historical period, God goes. He takes on the limitations of the people that he's going to reach and communicates to us through our own spoken word. He could have chosen any way to reveal himself, but instead he reveals himself in a human body, then through a human book, and he takes on the limitations thereof. God goes in humility and selflessness and vulnerability, and in grace. He places humanity's interest, he places your interest above his own, your needs above his own needs of comfort. Jesus goes and leaves the comfort and security and safety of his heavenly home so that he can come and rescue you. Three implications, and then we'll we'll be done. Let's try to make this very practical. Go in response, go in the same manner, and go to him. Go in response, go in the same manner, and go to him. First of all, go in response. As I quoted in your bulletin, as John, the Gospel of John, records this, he has Jesus say, as the Father sends me, so I send you. In the same way that God the Father has sent Jesus into the world, so I send you. And all of the implications of that. In other words, you disciples, you in town church, are made to be bearers of a task, not simply beneficiaries of salvation. You're bearers of a task. As the Father has sent Jesus into your life, therefore he is sending you in the same way into your world of relationships. A church that isn't missional in all things is not a church that's failing to be 
faithful to a particular task, but it's a church that's failing to be the church. The church is missional in its very commission, in its very beginning. And that's what we'll see again and again as we look at the book of Acts. A church that isn't missional in all things is not a church failing to be faithful to one particular task. It's a church failing to be the church. And we can never be content in town to just offer better programs than the church down the street, better religious goods and services so that the already convinced will simply change their membership and come to us. We can never be content just to do that, and that can't be what we communicate, that we have better goods and services than the person down the street, so therefore come to us. No, we're going into and sent into an unbelieving culture. That's the calling. We've got to see ourselves sent into the questions and burdens and needs of the culture that we inhabit. But remember and get this. It's not something that we'll do because we have to. We can't carry out that mission as a church or individual simply out of duty, simply because we're commanded to do so. We can only fake it for so long. Verse 40, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement. Joy and amazement. Luke's not rebuking them here for unbelief. What he is saying is that they still haven't processed how good this is. That they're still trying to wrap their heads around how amazing this is. It's too good to be true. It's better than expected. God himself stepped in our world and suffered for me and for us as a church and then rose again from the dead in joy and amazement they go out not out of debt not out of duty not out of burden but with joy and amazement because what God has done in their lives is so wonderful that they can't help but live that way but communicate but talk about it We as a church, you as a Christian, give yourself to others because you're amazed at how Jesus has given himself to you. You go in response to grace rather than going in order to earn it. You go in response to grace and what God has done for you. You go in gratitude, not trying to earn something, to earn his smile, to wrestle favor from his hands. First of all, Go in response. Then, secondly, go in the same manner. Notice the disciples. Where did they go? They didn't all scatter and go to their individual homes. Though they were scared and worried, they went to one home. In some way, though they were still confused, they intuitively knew that they were a community, that they were in this together. They were dejected and yet still seemed to know that there was a church being formed, that there was communion together in this mission. And it's this vivid word picture of the once dead, now risen Jesus standing among this community of disciples. That's the very essence of what it means to be the church, that Jesus has gathered his people together in one place and now stands in their midst. Before, they're dejected, they're disillusioned, they're fearful 
disciples behind locked doors. They're a non-church. But after the picture is what the church really is. It's a community with Jesus at the center. That Then they're able to break free of the walls and the confines of one physical space. And they're engaged in mission. They're opening the doors to allow people to flood in, and they're going outside of the doors to bring the good news of Jesus. They're engaged in mission rather than self-preservation. They're engaged in going rather than just simply building and constructing something that is meant for them. Without Jesus at the center, the church will never break out of its walls. Without Jesus at the center, we'll never open our doors for other people and expecting them to come in, but we'll want to make life about ourselves. We'll want to make this church about us and our agenda rather than Jesus' agenda of taking this church into the needs and burdens of the world around us and right next door to us. We have to first have the doors open for Jesus in all that that means, and he has to be in the room. He has to be in the center. Otherwise, we'll lock the doors, we'll be fearful, we'll be looking at one another rather than engaged in a beautiful but challenging mission. You go in response, you go in the same manner, and then finally you go to him. Go to him. He comes into your world with all of its messiness and all of its sin and all of its rebellion and brokenness, and he comes into your world and your life and says, peace be with you. Shalom, grace, life, salvation be with you. Not peace is up to you, but peace be with you. It's not a status to be earned, but it's a gift to be received. And when you get that, when you understand that he has come into your life and said, peace be with you, I'm turning backwards everything that is sad and broken and sinful about your life. I'm undoing it. I'm undoing even its consequences ultimately because now, because of what Jesus has done, you can stand before a holy God with confidence. You can know that your sins no longer mark you as far as he's concerned. And oh, by the way, beyond that, he's beginning to undo the consequences so that one day you will be raised again to newness of life and in some way your life will be concordant with the life that Jesus had after his resurrection. In some way, that's representative of the type of body, the type of life that you will inhabit forever. Peace be with you. Not simply, I will save you spiritually, although that starts there, but I will, I will redeem you in all that that means. I will make you new. And so you go to him, You go to that place of grace. You go to the person who comes into your life out of sheer grace. Peace is not up to you, but peace be with you. Go to him without hope that you could ever earn this type of salvation. Go to him without hope that you could ever even imagine that sort of thing, much less earn it and be worthy of it. But go to him with every hope that it's yours for the taking. Go to him with every hope that is yours for the taking. You can't do anything to earn it, and yet he gives it to you for free. That's a message to give your life to. 
That's a message to live another 20 years for. That's a message that can change you and is worth carrying others' burdens so that they can understand it as well. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would receive your peace, that we would live in that peace, that we would live in that rest, and that because of you, because of that rest that you have given, that we would have attractive lives, lives that would cause people to wonder what's going on and why is that happening, the life of a church that would be attractive and vibrant and lovely to behold, not out of our own strength and certainly not anything that we could ever do, but only through your Spirit coming and inhabiting this place. Would you do that more and more? And as we come to your table, would you prepare us to receive that peace yet again? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.